This is part two of the four parts podcast. Well, and you know what? I think I need to clarify when I went earlier uh, at the very beginning of this podcast. I mentioned that you have, in my in my opinion, that you have reverence for the bees, um, uh, which I'm not. I I, I kind of get the impression that you're always a little uncomfortable when I say that. But at the same time, I kind of feel like the, here's how I came to this conclusion: is that I I've been to all these different bee places, and they like you know let's open it up the hive and take a look at what's going on. Let's look for the queen. Let's harvest some honey. Let's do this kind of stuff. And when I'm at your place, it's like okay, we're gonna we're gonna lift the top off and have a look inside, and we're gonna pull out you know a, a little bit of the comb and take a look and you know check the health and stuff. But but when you put it back, it took you good twenty minutes to put everything back. Let no because yep. Let no bee be harmed by me interacting with them. That's clearly our motto. <laughs> so so I remember that you did have to spend a lot of time visiting with the bees that were in the way, and then <laughs> and then and then you're like hoping to get them on your finger so that way you can move them away. From like okay, we're gonna we're gonna put um, yeah, uh, the putting the super back on or the lid back on or whatever, and it's like you know if any bee could possibly be hurt even a little bit, then it can't go back on. Yeah, well, it's like we have to complete this operation with zero loss. Yeah. Whereas I don't have I don't have an acceptable losses thing on there. It's, you're right, it's zero, and I use my fingers or I use feathers or I you know. Feathers I use a lot because I can push the bees out of the way without them getting concerned uh, about it. So yeah, you're so right. You're right. You it took a long, long, long time <laughs> to put the lid on. By your standards, and, it took a long time. For me, it took a blink of the eye. <laughs> and for and for you, it was it was like this is this this interaction that you're having of okay, no, no, don't don't come back over here. I'm trying to put the lid on. Your interaction, you know, it was like this is the part that you have fun with, this is really, trying to get them to the point that you can put the lid back on, and it's kind of like you're not wanting to put the lid back on yet because you're still bonding with the bees. And it's the part where they understand me. They know that I am not going to cause them harm. And, you know, there have been a handful of times when I've had to do something with a hive where, oh, man, I had a hive that had, you know, some mold growing in the back of it. And I had to move the bees to another container, you know, another hive, another hive body. And it was it was traumatic. You know, it was like I was doing something. They didn't understand it. And I had to go really slowly. And it was very distressing to both of us to do it because it's so out of character for the way that normally the bees and I interact. So I think there's tremendous room to have a relationship with bees. I think so many Many people aren't taught that, you know, it's like they're bees, they're insects, you know, and what you're going to get is a lot of honey from them, hopefully. And, you know, and, and then you learn how to do these things that provide the most rudimentary care for them. I think it's really a, 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 there's a different way of being with bees, which is if you take it out so that it's not about the honey, I think you can get past that that part. It You know, often when I when I say I keep bees, people will respond to me by saying, oh, I love honey. You know, it's like, no, no, that's not where it is. It's not about the honey. If we keep perceiving it as what the bees can give to us is the only the only reason for interacting with them, then really we're, we're putting them in a role of like indentured servitude. Well, and that's and that's true. And, and I, and I kind of want to make it about the honey. I mean, it's like if it to me on an on an active farm. I mean, there is the plethora of life, and mm -hmm. that could include wildlife, and that can include life that is not serving a function. But I think that you know, especially like when we go, we try and talk to the conventional farmers that we were talking about earlier, and say, okay, you're raising almonds, and um, and you're making X amount per year. But it's like you know what? If you were to switch to polyculture, you could quadruple your annual income. Uh -huh. And and it's like you know one of those possible spaces is is honey and yeah. and it's like so I kind of feel like I wanna I I do want to make it about the honey you but on the other hand I want to approach it from a perspective of like you know what's the appropriate we, amount of honey for you to get is I think probably a better question 
So I, of course I get honey from my bees, but I don't take the maximum amount because then you fall into this weird thing where if you take too much honey from your bees, then you end up having to feed them back sugar or some crappy high fructose corn syrup that is often used in conventional beekeeping um, in order to replace what you just took away. Well, clearly that's you took too much. So I, yeah. I err on the side of leaving too much in there because I want to know that when they get to springtime, they've got enough. I just had a hive just, just a few days ago. I had a class I was teaching, and we opened up a hive. It was a small swarm that I got a little late in the season, so I've been keeping my eye on them anyway. And sure enough, we had a few warm days, and they pretty much ate up all their stores. So it was the middle of March, and they were just, just on the verge of starvation. Now, they've made it through the winter. And a lot of people would miss that they would, you know, they would have died off. So I immediately gave them back some honey. They didn't have enough honey to make it through the winter. I don't take honey from my first year bees anyway. So that was kind of a case where I was so glad I opened it up and took a look in there and got to see it. But what do I feed them back? I don't feed them sugar, for God's sakes. That's not, that's not what bees were made to eat. I feed them back honey. So I'm a honey hoarder. I think you knew that because when I collect the honey, I don't just keep enough, you know, I don't just get the honey for me. Um, and I, and we don't need that much anyway. You know, I, I look at the honey like really the honey for my bees is medicine for me. It's, I, I treat it like something it's, of course I use it to, you know, I get coconut frosting I make with honey or something like that. Yes. I use it for good tasting things. But I really believe that if you have an interaction with the bees in such a way that you're, you know, there's love going back and forth all the time between them, then it invigorates that food with some, some kind of vitality that when I eat the honey, it isn't just about the fact that it tastes great. It's that I truly feel better. I have more, more energy, you know, and it's not commensurate with any of the things that I can think of that would be logical, like what kind of flower did it come from or something like that. It's that the relationship becomes manifest in the animal that you're doing, you're having that relationship with. And, you know, again, we are, we're a whole farm where we raise our own animals for meat too. That's that same thing is with our beef cows. You know, when we slaughter a beef cow, I look at that like that's medicine that's coming back into me. And if we've had the proper relationship with the animal where love is a part of that, even knowing that we're going to take that animal to slaughter, then there's something else that happens inside of there. It's an animal raised in the environment of love. And I believe this is, you know, my, part of my spiritual orientation. I believe that that's, you know, we're helping all of, all of life in its evolution. Then if we can, take responsibility for domestication, meaning that we really give all those animals the fullest amount of um, care possible, including what comes from our hearts and souls, then we've, we've really done something magnificent there. We've really become a part of the cycle of evolution. And, and it's a lot like you know, there's a spectrum in there, and on, on one side of the spectrum is going to be harvesting food, whether it's honey or meat or eggs, mm -hmm. from sick animals or animals near death, you know, harvesting that food and consuming that food versus, um, you know, something that's like animals that, that, that are relatively healthy. Mm -hmm. And then further down the spectrum are going to be animals that are extremely healthy, so healthy to the point that they are, they, they are uh, reproducing uh, in in large quantity in there, you know, um, uh, I, for each animal, there's different signs of health. But I guess the the thing that I'm going with with the the honey, I mean, a, I mean, as long as we're going to talk about the sugar water thing or the high fructose corn syrup and feeding that back to bees, I mean, step one, they need to build up their reserves. You you don't take honey away um, unless they've built up the reserves. Plus, you know. Feeding them sugar water is a pain in the butt. You got to buy stuff and 
and and not just the feeders, but you also got to buy the the sugar, and then mix the water. And that's like a job. Isn't that crazy? And so when you could just leave them enough honey to make it through, and and you'd be fine. And like I said, you know, this is this is a smaller hive. I do have to do a little bit of interaction there, but I'm not mixing up anything. I'm just giving back, a, you know, some comb honey that came out of a, another hive next door to them. So I, and then on top of that, taking the honey out. Isn't that like that's like work? It's like that's like a job. And then, but if you just leave it there, just leave it there, really, man, that is so easy. Conservation and, of effort, yes. Yeah, and and now you don't have to to fool with all that sugar water stuff and things. But 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 generally, the recipe is to um, harvest the honey in the spring. So uh, that way, it's like, okay, now they've made it through the winter, yep. and now they're going to be you know, building up stuff yep. again. That's what we do just before the flow comes in. The flow, is, uh, the flow is when, in your particular geographic area, whatever it is that provides the maximum amount of nectar gathering. So in our, this is so funny because I'm in the Pacific Northwest, and the flow comes in mid-June – uh, mid and late June is the flow. That's when the blackberries bloom, which is so funny because it's an invasive. It's the Himalayan blackberry that is, you know, taking over every corner of land that isn't taken up by something else. And it, it, it actually is the dominating flower that our maximum honey production comes from here. And it's an invasive. And it, it is so funny. I look at different parts of the country and see where invasives have gone crazy but how does that relate to bees? You know, we have another one up here. We have Canadian thistle, and you probably have that out where you are. Right. And there's some, we lease a field for our cows, and we have one, probably about a half acre of long-term Canadian Canadian thistle in there. And man, oh man, that is a great bee flower. <laughs> so we're supposed to, by county, by county rules, we're supposed to knock that down every year before it hits the bloom stage. Man, I sit up there in that field looking at it going, oh, man, five more days. Give me five more days because my bees would be all <laughs> over this stuff. And then we knock it down before it goes to seed, and my cows will eat it. As soon as it gets uh, four hours of wilt in it, my cows will clean up every bit of that in the field. So it, it actually, for me, if I look at it that way, it's sure, it's an invasive, but if we could deal with it appropriately, then it also becomes a source of food for my bees and food for my cows. Right. I think there's a lot of animals that think that thistles are some of the tastiest stuff. I mean, <laughs> hey, you've got goats. Um, I mean, goats are browsers, and, and somehow they, they a lot of times they'll eat the thistles. Now, sometimes they will not, but a lot of times they, they will gobble them up on, you know, uh, without having to cut them at all. They're just just oh, yeah. sitting out there like, oh, oh yeah. delicious. Thistles don't, thistles don't survive in our goat pasture at all. Up where our cows are, the place where the thistles are, it's interesting because they're in the part that, you know, usually you have a winter, an area called the sacrifice area where you just know it's not going to be growing grass back. So that part gets pounded down by their hooves in January. And what comes up is thistle because what is thistle's role in the world to break up compacted soil? So I'm going to have thistle there. You know, you could spray weed killer over it as many times as you want, but really the role is there. The um, the appropriate use for that kind of uh, – the appropriate um, plant for that kind of area, really compacted soil, is thistle. So thistle is going to want to live there. So now – I want to I want to kind of wrap up a couple of things that I kind of started here. Yeah. And and one of the things I started was was that your approach to bees and is the same as your approach to goats, which I think is the opposite of mine. And of course, same thing with with your apple trees and and you know, I think that that you're you're embracing biodynamic and um and so basically I think that there's a lot of truth in that healthy, vibrant, happy, everything on your farm uh-huh. is going to lead to greater health and resilience of everything else on the farm, including the people on the farm. Um, and at the same time, my approach is the opposite of yours. Your approach is, is that you wish to go out and love on everything for hours every day. <laughs> if I had a lifestyle that would that required me to have no income producing at the same time, I would be able to do that. So I do try to 
get in as much of that as I can. But yeah, I mean, isn't that for me anyway, for us, I can include Joseph in this too. That's kind of the reason we do this. We do it because we want a particular, we want, we want our life to have that quality in it that pretty much every day there's something in there that sings to my heart. You know, well, I want. And I do think that that those of us that are that are into permaculture and homesteading, that that is what we all seek. But this is there is one important part that's where you and I are the opposite, and and that is that while you'll go out to the bees and the trees and the goats, and spend hours, even days, loving on them individually, then I'm the opposite. I will set up my chair out there and sit in the midst of it and and bask in the glow of the plethora of life but um um I'm more of an observer from the distance than than you are you, I mean you you wish to become as intimate as possible with all of these creatures uh-huh. whereas I'm just glad to be part of the whole picture and also when it comes to proper care um uh your your techniques are of course extremely effective and at the same time they they sound like a lot of work to me <laughs> well everything is and you know it uh, i'm building kind of an idyllic picture of like you know we we just run around and hug the baby goats and you know hang out <laughs> with the bees but really the timetable of our day from dawn to dusk and then some is it, it's filled with work we Oh, are yeah. constantly looking at, and how can we do this with less work? So we've got more of that basking time in there. So we're, you know, <laughs> frankly, if we're in there with the goats, we're probably also cleaning the goat pen at the same time. But it's part of the interaction. You know, so, so it's a ton of work at the same time. And we try to integrate it so that, um, what do we do? Like we're building new, we're building some new beds up in the garden. And we brought the portable fence up, and we put goats and babies in there right next to us, not for any real reason. There was no practical reason. Well, yeah, they were eating green grass. That was it. But really, it's just because we like to have them near us. And, you know, we're doing our work, but at the same time, we try to have a fun factor in everything, too. You know, okay, so I've got an example. In fact, I, this occurred to me the other day to share in a podcast at some point, and now I realize this is that this moment. Is the one. And, Go. And, and so um, for those people that are currently listening, that are listening to this podcast, and they're still dreaming about what they're going to do someday, they're going to get land and, and stuff like that, I, I want to suggest that they get like a 40 or 50-gallon aquarium, <laughs> freshwater aquarium. And, and, and I was saving this up to be using in a, in a, pod, in a podcast that has to do with ponds or something like that. But I, I think, because I, I once had an aquarium um, back when I was living in the city, and I had a big, big garden out front and everything. But um, here's, here's what you learn with an aquarium, is that for the first 30 days, you're going to do all this stuff to make the aquarium be healthy. Because the bacteria hasn't gotten started, you don't have the circulation of everything going just right, and, and it's like, so when there's you know when the fish poop then and or when you put too much food in then and then everything is thrown off and and your fish can die if you're not right there taking care of the situation but but after a while what happens is is that the whole system is pretty much on autopilot you got to put in the tiniest little sprinkle of food pretty much once a day and and nothing more that's it and in fact, my aquarium, the only thing I ever did was is once a month I would scrape the algae off the glass and I'd sprinkle a little food in each day because my systems were all established. My ecosystem was set. And and I could and the one way that you could tell it's thriving is that the plants would just get enormous uh-huh. and um uh, all kinds of life inside was reproducing. Mm-hmm. Um and so then it is a sign of a plethora of life and I think that's what we're shooting for. Now, <clears throat> The point I'm, I'm trying to make in all of this is that with my aquarium, then I got to the point where I would stare into it and I would scrape the glass and throw a tiny sprinkle of food in and, and that was all. I, I spent huge tracks of time just staring into it. But I think you would like perpetually be loving it. You would, you would add new plants, add new fish, you know, move other fish on. We have, a, um, we have an aquarium. 
We do have an aquarium, and it's Joseph's Aquarium. I have zero interest in the fish. Every once in a while, he'll call me over to see something going on, and I think, uh-huh, uh-huh, and I just have no relationship to it at all. He has a good one. He likes to sit in front of it and just stare at the fish at every once in a while for five minutes or something like that. But it is funny because you're you're citing, like, the one animal we have on, on the farm that I have no connection to at all. <laughs> well, and I kind of think that, that and, and I'm trying to get to a place with the bees where I want to I want to mention the thing about the bees, but um, I I kind of feel like when you care for goats, you interact with the goats a lot. Whereas when I care for goats, I mean, a I use a portable shelter, so I never have to clean up the goat pen. I just move the shelter. Yeah, we actually do it once a year. Although when we have babies right now, we are being a little bit cleaner about it. Um, so. And and it's like when it comes to babies, it's it's like good luck goats, you're on your own. And and it's like I, I imagine there's a lot of goat loving people out there that that'll think that I'm a a horrible person because I'm I'm not out there like you are. And it's like oh, it's time for the goats to have babies, and so I'm gonna go and spend the night with the goats. Yeah, you know to make sure everything is smooth. And I'm I'm kind of um, more like you know goats that have re you know. Uh, um, had babies for thousands of years without any human interaction whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So um, they're pretty good at it. <laughs> they don't. They, they don't need me. <laughs> and so, but I. I kind of feel like my approach to permaculture is different from yours. Yours. Yours is going to be that you want to be there, loving on it. And I'm lazier than that. And I like the idea of like, can I create a system that will thrive and be wonderful? Without needing me to be part of it, and we because do share I kind of feel like we actually do, which, we do share okay. that goal, Paul. I do want to say that because okay. the things that we choose to make the time for, loving on the baby goats or sitting laying in the hammock or things like that, are really important to us. And, and you know, it, it's hard to separate out the work from from that. We just try to bring that love to the work that we do, and you know, cleaning out the the cow manure from the cow barn in the wintertime, you know, I mean, I, it's a task and we try to do it with a light heart, but it's still physical work and it's a task and it has to get done every few days because that's where they hang out in the wintertime. So, yeah, I'd like to be able to, and we're always looking at what system could we create that would make this whole task easier? So we share that. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to say that in a way we do, but in, in a bigger way we don't. Because you want to get down there and love on that goat. And frankly, yep. I've been around goats a lot, and um, uh, and they desperately want me to love on them and pet them, but they stink. <laughs> they smell like goats. <laughs> and it's like, now my hands are going to smell goaty the rest of the day. Oh, that's and, funny. Uh, and now it's like, now, of course, you want baby goats. That means you have to have a buck. <laughs> Oh, no, no, no. You know what? We borrow the buck. And, you know, if we if we were bigger, we'd probably have our own bucks. But, man, oh, man, for the 30 days that that buck comes and lives here, woohoo! you don't want to go down anywhere near that the area that we put them in. Ah. That smell was wafting up. We, we kept looking wa- at each other going, this is why we don't have a male. <laughs> yeah. See, now, my, my one of my primary rules about farming is is that if it smells bad you're doing it wrong yeah and that goat smells really really bad (laughs) well the right way to do it then is to borrow the buck from our neighbor who has the smelly buck over in her land yeah and and, you know it's not a fully self-contained system then but that's one thing we're willing to make an exception for on the other hand our cow's poop does not stink because we're totally grass-fed and there is no you know there is no order to that, and I think that's something that a lot of people don't know. If you feed a, if you feed your ruminants appropriately, there should be aside from the smelly hormonal stuff that comes off your goat. Um, if you feed it, the poop shouldn't be stinking. It really should be that it smells pretty darn good. So the the place where this ties back into the bees is going to be that, um, of course, if the chemical companies that sell you all the different kinds of uh, a toxic gick to put in there that's supposedly going to help the bees, then what they want you to do is um, open up that hive once a week and inspect it Yep. Uh-huh. To, to see if you need to buy some of their products. Yep. 
you know, and and I kind of feel like the best thing, one of one of the best things, which we didn't put in our video, which now I'm regretting, we should have put this in there. This is so important, is don't open it. Yeah, and I think that's something that very few beekeepers know. One of the reasons you don't, there's two reasons why you don't open the hive as often as people have been taught to. You know, when I went through bee school 10 years ago, I really was taught that if you didn't open your hive up every seven to 10 days, you were a pretty lousy beekeeper and you weren't taking care of your bees appropriately. I am so on the opposite end of that now. The two reasons why you want to keep it more um, closed in is first of all the obvious thing is heat heat you've got um baby babies in cells in there in the brood chamber uh which is the nursery and those bees have to be kept in the upper 90 degrees so if you've got babies in there no matter what time of year it is that's got to be an appropriate temperature and an appropriate humidity if it's too dry or too damp that's not good for them either so the bees have sealed off the entire interior of the hive. They put propolized everything so that they've got their entrance coming in and out, and they can completely control the temperature and the humidity in there. And when they're doing that, everything all's right in the world. As soon as you open it up, you went from, you know, let's say 97 degrees, all of a sudden you open it up on a nice sunny warm day to 75 degrees, which feels like it's pretty warm still to us, but it's completely way off for what the brood chamber needs. So that brood chamber really needs to have the heat maintained. And if I do open my hive up, man, I'm super fast with it. One of the things I do is I, you know, I'll take a box off and I immediately put a sheet of plexiglass over the top of it. And that way I can open it up and I can look in there. I mean, what am I looking for? I can have a pretty good look from the top for a while to see what I, you know, kind of get the lay of the land in there. If I have to open it up and, take a, a comb out for some reason to take a look or whatever I'm doing. Um, I can kind of not waste the time that I would be observing over the top of it. I, I'll probably leave that piece of um, plexiglass on there for, I don't know, a few minutes even, just looking, looking, seeing what's going on in here and trying to keep the, the heat as maintained as I can. And then I do my task and I get out of there really fast. In the early time of me having bees, I used to do it the same way as everybody else. I'd open my hive up. We'd pull out combs. We'd look for the queen. We'd see everything going on. And I'd spend 15 minutes, half an hour doing that. Well, I've completely changed that around. Um, and the second reason that you want to be quick on the in and out in there is the hive scent. The scent is really important. There's a, a book written by a... French monk, uh, Warre, W-A-R-R-E, uh, on beekeeping for all. And there's a PDF file you can even get on the Internet that's free of his treatise on bees. And uh, I learned from him about the importance of the scent. And I've learned much more from my own bees since then, too. When the bees make the propolis, that they're, they're making the propolis from the sap of trees, the essential oils of, of flowers and a little bit of wax. That's the stuff that they use as the bee glue that seals out all of the exterior and, um, you know, kind of it, it's the bee glue. It's the, it's that sticky, sticky stuff in there. But it's also, red stuff. Yeah, the red stuff, often red, can be dark green or dark brown, can be a lot of different colors, but primarily mine is very bright red. Anyway, and, and people used to use it to like uh, fill uh, cavities yes. in their teeth. Yes, because it has this quality of, of medicine, and that is the bee air inside the hive. The bees have constructed that air to support their immune systems, and that's something that most people don't know, that the air in there, they're breathing that air all the time, and they've made it just exactly what they need. Uh, when bees go out to collect uh, the essential oils from plants, which comes in when they're gathering the nectar, um, they're, they'll discriminately use what they need for bee medicine. And it's one of the things I think if you're going to do one little thing for bees, even if you don't have a beehive, plant some medicinal herbs. Plant any kind of a flowering herb as a medicine for a bee, and they'll use it when they, when they need it. So when you open the hive up and you free up all that air, you just cleaned out all the bee air in there. And there, there goes their medicine chest out the window. So until you have it closed up again and the bees can kind of, you know, get that density of, of scent in there, 
you know, they're kind of just breathing outside air too. That air is really healing to them. So I don't want to disrupt that as much as it as I, I want to disrupt that as little as possible also. Now, um, I, I have not built it yet, but ever since I was at your place a, a few years ago and, and I, I saw that you had three different kinds of hives there, uh, one being a warrior hive, uh, obviously, you know, along the lines of this French guy you're just talking about. Uh-huh. But but um, uh, one of the hives had a little viewing window yeah. on the side. I like And <laughs> I just thought, that is brilliant. Now you can take a look inside. Without see, disturbing them, yeah. Yeah, all sorts of activity and people are moving around. Well, bees, bees are moving around. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, that's what it should look like. Yep. And then close the little window. And that's and... exactly it, Paul. That's, that's the thing. And I have windows on a lot of my hives. And I open them up and I look and I go, appropriate amount of activity in the right places right now. Uh, I don't need to go in there and do anything. Everything, All is well in that world. So, And, and by window, it's got an actual piece of glass in the wood. Mm-hmm. And there's a little wooden door over the glass and so you pop the little wooden door yeah and it's, the glass it's, is still there it's recessed so that yeah. it's not on the surface so it's not going to make condensation being you know having cold air against warm air on the inside right so so now you can you can you know check on the activity i mean basically if there was something really bad you would see like a lack of activity oh, yeah. um, lethargy or even like where'd everybody go there's nobody there uh-huh. or you see frantic activity you know, like something's really wrong in here, like they're being robbed, for example, by from a, another hive. And, you know, then you'd see everybody's running around going, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. So, yeah. We're under attack. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, if I ever have a question about that, I can I can look and go, no, it's appropriate. We're all we're all OK or or no, there's something that needs to be done right away. Right, 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 right. I, I so I just thought that, the, and of course, you can put this window in any kind of hive. Uh huh. So we've so, got them in our top bar hives. We've got them in our warays. I've even got one. Well, I attached a waray to the top of a tree hive. I have bees that live in a tree um, that someone cut down uh, uh, probably a 40-foot tall alder tree and about 25 feet up in the trunk, there was a hive of bees living there. And it was November. It was not the right time to be moving bees. And when the tree trunk, when it came down, the guy was cutting it down because it was starting to get kind of punky. And when it came down and hit the ground, you realized, oh, my God, it has bees in it. And it smashed the top part of the hive off, which was where all their honey was stored. So I went up and uh, we got a chainsaw and we cut off an 11-foot section of it and had them take a, what is it, front-end loader? Front-end loader and put it in the back of my truck and bring it on down here. And we set it up and took care of the bees. Now, I've got some video of that hive, and I haven't put it up yet. Um in fact, I think we've got your Vols video about ready to go up. We'll, put, we'll be putting that up really soon. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I gotta, we should probably get that one with the, the log hive ready. But the key is, is that no matter what kind of hive you have, you can do this thing with this little window. Mm-hmm. And then the only time you ever need to open it is if there's something wrong and you might be able to fix it or it's time to harvest. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm actually just thinking I have four... I have a different kind of hive, too. I have bees that live in the north wall of my house. Oh, I am so blessed. And that is, in the old days, it was thought of that. If bees chose your house to live in, it was a blessing. It was like tremendous luck coming your way. And I keep thinking it's on the second floor stairwell, and I keep thinking, I should put a little bee window in there, too. That would be really kind of fun. So, so now I have video of that, too, but that video didn't turn out very good. Okay. And and so it's, it's part of... I mean, um, um, my detractors talk about how I just happen to, you know, that there's nothing special about me or what I do. I just happen to be in in the right place at the right time with some very good people, and that's all there is to do whatever I do. And I kind of feel like, well, that is true, but there's also actual work. (laughs) And so... Um, and the um, right place at the right time, you know. Hey, the Vikings used to say that was an important part of your character. They chose, they chose, they elected their rulers based on not just the, you know, the qualities of the good qualities that you'd want in a ruler, but they also uh, elected them based on if they had the quality of luck. <laughs> so you're lucky. You're at the right place at the right time with the right people and the right things. 
good thing to have. <laughs> well, and I think I think 90% of the video I take never makes it up on YouTube because of one thing or another. And so then that, I think, was was such excellent video, but then it just didn't turn out. And and it's like, okay, so it doesn't make it up on YouTube, which is unfortunate because that is such a cool, cool thing. Yeah. So, um, but yes, the bees, you can hear them when you're inside the house and you're standing near that that point in the house, which is like by your stairs. Yep. And you know, I think it, I get calls all the time from people like, oh, I've got bees in my house. Can you come get them out? And I always try to spend some time educating people first before we just go remove them. And, and not everybody's open to this, but I explained to them, you know, if they came and found your house and moved in, if you can live with the bees being there, it's a great place for them. You know, they're not going to they're probably not going to freeze to death over the winter time, and you know it's it's a good safe place. Not many things can get to them, and they say, yeah, but won't it be like honey all down my walls, and you know rats trying to get in and things? And it's like no, it's just the opposite. It's actually when they've made they've made that completely enclosed area of their hive, um, they've sealed it off, and nobody can get in there anyway because they're protecting it. It's their home. Uh, if they take if they get it exterminator to come what happens is a terrible thing the exterminator comes first of all sprays toxic crap all over their house and you know in the wall that it obviously is going to come out into their house at some level anyway but they kill off the bees but the hive stays there and what happens is that honey then with no one protecting it does become an attractor for oh ants or other uh, you know mice or whatever and uh, things that want to come eat the dead larvae that are you know killed and laying in there still that becomes a big issue because if you're going to remove bees from a house you actually have to remove the entire hive with them you can't just take the bees out that's where the problem comes in so I try and tell them you know the easiest thing is just leave them be if they're it's a problem if they're running, a, you know, the, the bee line is right in front of your front door, then, yeah, okay, maybe that's an issue. But anyplace else, if you can let them be there, I don't know. I, when we bought this house, it's a 100-year-old house with the second owners. It already had bees in it, and I think they've been here for probably 60 years. I don't want to move those bees. I think those bees are actually the bees that find places, and I'm not just talking about in the houses, but bees that find places to live on their own without any human intervention at all. You know, swarms living in a, a swarm moves into a hollow tree trunk or a wall of my house. Those are the bees with no human intervention that are survivor stock. So we want those. We want those to be, that's the future of bees. We want those bees to be out in the world propagating more swarms as much as they can. Well, I think another interesting thing that hasn't been brought up that I've heard of yet is that when you combine the thing about, you know, the temperature that they need to keep the hive at through the winter, mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> I mean, basically, if you had six of these in your house, wouldn't, wouldn't that pretty much heat your home? <laughs> That's funny. I never thought of that before. My my home is a bee heated home. <laughs> That's what I use for heat is bees. <laughs> so uh, I, yeah, that'd be kind of cool. I I think you know it's like yeah, it's, I'm, everything's being kept plenty warm by the bees. Well, it's um, funny because that one wall of the house, it's the north wall of the house, and yet if you put your hand on it, you know it's it's got a certain temperature to the wall. So yeah, that's a funny idea. <laughs> Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna now backtrack about um, 25 minutes, and I was, I'm working down my list, and we got to talking about mites, and and I think we did a pretty good job of talking about um, conventional versus organic versus permaculture, uh-huh. um, and and so basically I think that the permaculture approach is going to be that the mites are part of nature. Yep. And and we embrace the mites. Yep. The Just mites the must be there. Are. It's the, think of it like aphids. You know, I, I have a, a good example of this. When I had some plants growing I, uh, off the edge of my compost pile one year, I had these, uh, obviously, a, a big, long strip of mustard fell off the compost pile and just must have dropped its seed in a straight line. And I had... Um, I had a row of mustard grow up. It, it looked so funny. It was like you took a machine gun and brrr, shot a line of seed. They just grew in one stock-wide line of seed that sprouted up. 
and it was fabulous. It was growing right next to my compost pile. So the nutrition in the soil was really, really superb. That, And I'm not a fan of mustard, but really it was good. And a few days into looking at this, I noticed that I had just a few plants in the back row, two plants that were covered with aphids. And yet I probably had 60 or 70 plants that had that were perfection. And I just spent, you know, here we are, permaculture. What do we do? We observe. So I didn't pull them out. I just left them there. They didn't climb onto any other plants or anything. And I was going, why would that happen? Why would I have 68 perfect plants and two covered with aphids? And then by watching for about a week, I started to notice, you know, the stems on these particular plants were um, they probably germinated just maybe two, three days after the ones in the front row, and these were in the back row. So they had to climb up a lot faster to keep the, to keep themselves in the sun um, and not get shaded out in the back row. So their stem was more watery, um, and they were the, the leaves were less full. They were trying to get height rather than bushiness. And really what it came down to was this was a weaker plant than the other plants in the, in the row. So nature sends in um, and sends in aphids in this case, who were trying to knock it back, who were really saying, "You guys, we don't want your seed in the gene pool. You're a little too weak for what everybody else is doing here, so we're going to knock you out." I mean, that's brilliant on nature's part. How do we keep things out of the gene pool? You send in a pest who can knock back the whole system. So that's what we're having with our bees going on, that same kind of testing. Are the bees strong enough to deal with some kind of a challenger that is either going to knock them out of the gene pool or they get past it? So I have had mites on my bees in the past, and I've even had deformed wing virus, which is one of the viruses that the mites can carry in there. When, when I do have something, when I have had something like that, I let them go. I let them go and I watch. And I, you know, if I had been a conventional beekeeper, I would have thrown some toxic chemicals on them right away. If I had been an organic beekeeper, I would have tried to do an organic treatment like formic acid or something like that, that are organic treatments. Um, but I'm not. I'm a, I'm some kind of a permaculture biodynamic treatment free <laughs> crisscross. And what I did was I left them. I go over there. I talk to them. I say, I hope you guys make it. I'm praying for you. I'm wishing wishing you well. I hope you make it. And then I go out and I do something in my garden to give them more nutrition, stronger flowers to be eating. You know, that's where I put my effort. I don't do anything inside of the hive. All I do instead is go outside and plant more flowers that are going to be healthier. Well, if so, you've got mites or if you've got some other kind of problem, with your hive or with any kind of animal or plant within your your, your area of stewardship, mm -hmm. then um, I like what Sepp Holzer has to say that if if something's going in the way that you don't want or or if things are sick, then it shows that you're a poor steward. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but you don't you don't try to kill the you don't try to kill nature. You don't try to poison nature. But That's not the thing. You're never gonna win. <laughs> It's, I mean, the thing to do is is to say, okay, well, what did I, did I as the steward here, what did I do wrong? Yeah. And, and it's kind of like, okay, so I want this plant to be here, and so, but now it's covered in aphids. So what did I do wrong? Yeah. And, and it's going to be that, you know, you've got too much monoculture. monoculture. You've got not enough of the right kind of soil or whatever, and it's kind of like, and, it, and it's, and I think a big part of it is is it's not like you should, you know, do a soil test and then do amendments. I don't think that's it. But I do think you should have lots and lots, like you don't have enough edge. Or this plant isn't doing well here, but it turns out the exact same species is over there. Yep. And it's doing really well. Yeah. We would have appropriate in which case, conditions. Appropriate conditions is right what you're saying. You, and this, you're right on the money on this because when you've got the mites, you've got – parasites out of control and really their function is kill off the weak why do i want to why do i want to step into the middle of that that's an appropriate uh, yeah. appropriate <laughs> nature nature had a contest these guys lost the contest uh-huh nature nature said survival of the fittest uh -huh. you guys didn't make the cut and nature's always yeah. looking at good gene pool i want this to go forward with good gene pool 
So, I mean, part of it is you can look at it and you can say, did I do something to reduce the odds for these poor bees? Is it my fault? Sure. Did I not observe well enough? Yeah. Am I feeding them crappy sugar? Am I opening up the hive all the time and disturbing them? Am I, you know, breaking open the sanctity of the brood area, which I really try not to violate hardly ever, ever, ever? Because I think it's, I, I always think of the brood area. It's like the cervix. I, you know, you're not supposed to be in there. Get out of there. That's... <laughs> so, yeah, those are all questions to ask is, you know, in poor location. Do I have the hive down low to the ground where it's getting all these damp vapors coming up inside of it? You know, no, put them up high. Let them be where bees want to be. Bees really, hey, they'd love to be 20 feet up. Well, that's a little hard for me to deal with the, um, deal with the hive if it's 20 feet up, but I want them to be up higher anyway. So all my hives are in an apiary. I, I have a gazebo or I have them up on, uh, you know, we Joseph built me like kind of three foot high sections where like where that tree, the trunk hive got moved to um, so that the, the bees are up off the ground where they want to be. I did see a really cool solution. There was a woman up in Canada who whose hives kept getting hit by bears and they just come and, you know, the bears don't eat the honey, contrary to what people think with Winnie the Pooh. Um, they're really looking for the larvae. They're looking for the protein. And they would knock over her hives and destroy them. So she came up with a brilliant solution. She tied a rope in all four sides around it like a like a basket and then threw a branch, uh, threw a rope up over a branch of a tree. And she hoists them up there and ties them off. So the bears can't get to the ah. Isn't that brilliant? Mm. And if she has to deal with the hive, she lets the rope down and puts it down on the ground, does whatever she's doing in there. She doesn't go in there that often during the year. It's not a like an every day or even every other week kind of a thing. It's a beautiful, brilliant solution for, for the conditions that she found herself in. So I'm gonna I'm gonna move forward with the list, and then and the next item on the list is cell size. Yeah, cell size. This is this is a real logic thing. And D. Lusby down in um, Arizona has done a lot of work on this. Um, she's the one, who, the woman who runs the uh, organic beekeepers list on Yahoo, which is a great one for people to join. B. D. Will bite your head off. And like she takes no prisoners. If you start talking about treatments for bees, you are just off the list. She has no, she takes no truck with that. Um, and I admire her for, for having this, you know, she's really strong in believing in putting out, this is how I believe bees are. Uh, one of the things she's done a lot of kind of research on is the size of the bee. The smaller the bee, the less time the bee spends in the gestation phase in the cell and mites lay their eggs in the cell so that they develop as the baby bee is developing. Um, the longer the time in the cell, the more propensity for mite development. So right now we've got a lot of very large bees that are being sold in the United States with the premise that a larger bee is going to carry more honey and you know really produce more honey. But she's on the opposite side of that curve going, you know, no, smaller bees, they can work just as hard. They're actually more efficient flight-wise, and um, they spend less time in the cell, so there's there's much less mite production within that particular hive. And she's been really proving that out. So, yeah, good thing to go with. When people buy plastic foundation with a set cell size, and it's usually a larger cell size, the bees are just committed to having to grow bees that are that size. So it's a good thing to either, A, let your bees build their own comb in the size that they want, or, um, well... I'm Wax gonna... Foundation does the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of people, they, for the longest time, then, then you know, they were either doing that. They wanted to start the cell size at a certain size, mm -hmm. one way or another, and and they would go for this larger size. Right. And <clears throat> now, this is, suddenly now, all the bees are being wiped out by these mites, um, and and it's like wow, um, it's taken us this long to make this connection that there could be a relationship there. Yeah. But but now it, it seems like in the last eight to ten years, there's been a lot of people moving towards no, let the bees create their own cell size. Yep, their own conditions for which they can thwart the the mites. Yeah, it, it's really let the bees do it. They know how to do it better than we know. Right, right. I mean they've they've somehow mysteriously managed to um, uh, reproduce year after year after year um, for 
millennia without any human intervention. Yeah. And then now we've got human intervention and they're dying. It, like yeah, and we're kind of screwing it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but um, I, I, and, and I've, I've heard some people try to say that the cell size doesn't matter. And then my, my response is, is that, okay, then you don't mind if I do this. Well, you know, <laughs> most of the people who are saying cell size doesn't matter are not doing that. So I don't really see them as experts on it. I see the people who are saying cell size does matter and who are getting smaller bees who are better able to fend off the mites. I'd trust their opinion more. Well, I think cell size matters a lot when you're trying to sell uh, miticides. <laughs> yeah. Sure. You know, then you definitely want to use those bigger cell sizes. I mean, that's required. I mean, you're only an idiot unless you do that mm -hmm. and yeah. buy our miticide products. Um, so, yeah, I, I think uh, I think for a permaculturalist, then then the key is, is let the bees make their own cell size. And even even still, like let's say – Let's say the bees make cells that are the same size, and then they get the mites, and then another colony right next door has a different genetic set, and they make a, a smaller cell. Well, then, hey, nature's got a way of working that all out. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, again, we're, we're back. To, in fact, that's, that's the very next item on my list, genetics. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, genetics, you know, we keep doing these things where we breed bees to have like uh, there's a – well, we breed bees. I, I'm even going to just talk overview for a minute. We breed according to what we think is needed. And I think we, we miss a lot of the, the smaller pieces of information that are contained within that. Like I know right now there's a lot of breeding going on for mite resistance hives that have mite resistance, they're breeding queens that head off in that direction. But, you know, we don't know what, we don't have access to what the full knowledge of that is. And some of the, I read a really interesting study that said, it, it actually wasn't about bees so much as it was about um, particular genes that are related to OCD-like behavior. And one of the things they cited in it was, that bees that were being bred for mite resistance, um, that was one of the things they they do. They clean each other. They groom, they groom, they groom, they groom, they groom, and they get the mites off of each other. So they're breeding bees that have that. And I think, you know, I'd be a little cautious on that because, it, you know, you get where I'm going with this. <laughs> Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, you know, this is a good quality. In balance, it's a good quality. But if you start prioritizing that, then, you know, not so much. Um, they breed bees to be calmer. But, you know, I'll tell you, some of the most productive bees I've had were the ones that were, I would not exactly call them the calmest, friendliest bees. I, a lot of my bees are friendly, but not all of them. And, man, I had the ones that were, we called it the uber hive. Um, they were rocking. They were, they were bred for vitality, obviously, much more than calmness. And that vitality goes with, you know, they they built up their size quick. They brought in tons of honey. They were really, they were just busy, busy bees. Um, so I think we make mistakes sometimes when we're looking at the genetics thinking, oh, here's the solution. I'll build my bees doing this. And we uh, we don't see the big picture well enough. I'd, I'd rather trust nature on some of these things and let her go. There's another thing too, when we do this, like we we breed bees and then we artificially inseminate them with, you know, the next drone coming down the line rather than the drone that's strong enough to catch that queen as she's flying straight towards the sun, you know, at a billion miles an hour. Only the strongest drones can catch and mate with her. And, um, you know, that's that right there is clearing out weakness. It's culling weakness out of the the next gene pool that's coming up. Every single hive has its own qualities of strength and positive traits. You know, some of them might be really good honey producers, and another one does a great, brilliant wax building and does great stuff with the strength of their comb. Or another one might be a hive that has a really fertile queen. You know, they all have their strengths, and I, I think it, it behooves us to let those qualities develop out the way that nature wants them to, rather than for us to isolate qualities and, you know, make sacrifices. So the, the bees that have mite resistance, for example, who knows, they might also be poor on queen fertility. And, you know, then you start breeding this in and we kind of scr we scramble it up a bit. 
hey, isn't that how we got killer bees? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And and in one of the movies that one of the bee movies out there that's talking about colony collapse disorder, um, uh, it's like. Uh, they've they've got this little segment where it's like, oh hey, look at this, and then there's this there's this woman there, and she's so excited about her work, and and she's she's like, um, got a, a queen bee, and she's like, now watch as I open up the bee's vagina. Oh god, that and, just and now I'm going to shove the sperm in there, and look now the now this this queen bee is all set to go with this new genetics, and it's kind of like, hey, check it out, bee rape. I've got this idea too that you know I I sometimes I spend so much time with my bees that I just I get it's information from the bees and let's I might as well just state that you know I I hear them I really I I listen to them a lot and one of the things I I thought about a lot with this and that I've really gotten from the bees is about swarm when when Bees swarm, a lot of beekeepers, conventional beekeeping says swarming is bad. And yet this is how bees propagate themselves. This is how they make another hive. You know, they go take all the mature bees and the old queen and they depart and they go off and they find and build a new hive. And they've left behind, they've willed to the next generation of bees, you know, some some queen eggs that haven't hatched yet and a hive completely filled up with uh, all the the honey and the pollen that's necessary for the next generation and all of the younger bees who are the house bees, not the foragers, the house bees who are there to take care of everything. This is a brilliant, brilliant process that nature is designed to do this. When we thwart hives from swarming, we try to keep everybody inside. And, you know, it's, it's written on why do we do this in the first place? Why do we want to thwart them? Because two thirds of your bees leave and all of a sudden you've got you know, low honey production until the hive, the young hive builds itself up to size again, which can take a few weeks to do. Um, But one of the premises about this is that, you know, you you keep your queen inside in the dark all the time. And I think, I'm writing a book right now, and this is one of the ideas in it, but I think it's worth saying anyway, when you keep hives, when you keep your queen in the dark all the time and you don't let her go out and have this beautiful flight with the swarm that makes the swarm more more cohesive, more related to each other, you also don't allow the sun to hit the queen, which it does when they're swarming. Um, so you keep your queen in the dark. And I believe that it has... It, when the hot, when the swarm goes out and the queen goes out with them and the sun shines on the queen once a year that it stimulates the hormones that build her honey her uh, fertility so that you get a fertile queen for another year and one of the things in breeding is that they often will replace the queen every single year and i remember in b school saying well why do you do that because a queen can be fertile for 5 6 7 years i've read that and they say, yeah, but her fertility really goes down a whole lot after the first year. Well, I think those two things are related. You thwart swarming. <laughs> you don't let the queen get out in the sun. Obviously, the sun must be doing something to her hormonally. And then you go, dang, we thwarted swarming, and now we have an, an, in, a queen with reduced fertility. Well, I think we just did it, you know? I you know and and so that was another thing too is is part of it is 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 that if you're going to artificially inseminate the queen it's like doesn't the queen mate once yeah. in in her entire life that's it so she's going to get laid one time and you kind of rob that yeah how rude that's just not okay yeah I think there's there's <laughs> things that happen in just you know by virtue of being out in the sunlight and the flight and you know we, she's only out there a very few times but I think nature's designed it that this time out in the sun. Uh, something happens with it. And, you know, they, bees don't mate if it's a cloudy day. Hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. a cloud cover, uh-uh, won't happen that day. So I, I, I think that um, <clears throat> when, it, when it comes to genetics, I mean, right now, one of the most important um, components of the genetics is that when you go and you buy a colony to have it shipped to you, yeah. um, I think that the way that they do uh, production of the um, uh, um, the bees, it, 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 I'm trying to come up with the right words here, the reproduction, the, 
the the reproduction way that they'd go about it is to produce as many bees as fast as possible yeah. without regard of any genetic quality. Yeah. So when you buy um a, you know a, a, a nuke that comes with a queen and a whole bunch of bees, then they are all um their their genetics is really really weak because there was no selection that happened there. It was just let's find ways to pump out uh, uh, queens and worker bees just as fast as we can and sell them en masse because we get paid the same whether they're of quality or not. Yeah, and you know it's really kind of especially with new beekeepers who participate in that. This is, I hear it all the time. Oh yeah, I bought a nuke, but they died. They didn't make it a year. It's really common for those to not be strong enough. And then um, I think I, I heard a statistic that was something like ninety-five percent of all the bees we have in the United States right now come from, I think it's seven different companies. I mean, whoa, that's yeah. low genetic diversity right there, rather than nature doing it, which is, nine, you know, 100% of the bees coming from, wow, <laughs> a lot of genetic diversity. And, you know, nature will cull out the weakness on its own. We keep, I think we keep propagating it. Now, in the in our little CCD video, one of the points that you made was to make sure that when it comes to genetics that you use local genetics. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, come on, Georgia, is a, there's a bee company down in Georgia, and I know people up here who buy bees from Georgia. Those are good bees. I've read about it. They're good. It's like, yeah, okay, didn't in Georgia have a drought for like 10 years, and then they get up here in the Pacific Northwest, and we've got seven months of rain. You know, those bees are just not, they're going to go, wow. <laughs> they're not going to be suited to the area. So, yeah, I think it just makes common sense logic, you know. Right. Get bees Dry country bees, they're not going to have good defenses against funguses, which are going to be very dominant in your climate in western Washington. And they're not going to be familiar with how the cycles go. That's, I think, the biggest thing for it. Or, you know, I would never send my bees down to the desert. They'd be lost. They, right. You know, I mean, they could find plants to pollinate and things like that, but the but the whole structure of the hive, how they build their hive and all of that, I think those details get lost in the mix then. So, yeah, local, local. Okay, and then when it comes to genetics, my last point to make in the world of genetics um, has to be that, you know, um, and, and I want to I share a quick story about Joel Salatin and his son uh, who raised rabbits. And um, and so and it took eight years, and so he, he did or dared not mention this until after they got success. But uh, the meat rabbits were apparently uh, so uh, conditioned to, to receiving antibiotics that they didn't really have much of an immune system of their own. So in order to raise rabbits without antibiotics, he had to have this extremely high mortality rate for eight years until they finally started having a normal mortality rate. Yep. Um, that parallels to what our experience is here in the United States. When you're talking about raising bees that are mite resistant, typically uh, if you go off chemicals and you know start raising bees treatment-free, typically it's going to take you about two, maybe three years to actually get to that point where your bees are strong enough then to do that. When I was in Dominican Republic, we were asking them, you know, they were clearly organic because it was a – a money issue, you know, <laughs> chemicals are too <laughs> expensive when you're more, uh, you know, when you're not, well, anyway, that makes common sense. <laughs> they weren't buying the chemicals, even though they'd been told they were supposed to. And it took them less than a year to take their bees from mites to being independent of mites. That's pretty cool. So yeah. depending on the different area, your, your bees can do it. You just have to be willing to have the courage to let them do it. And, and then that leads to this final point of genetics is that um, – and, and I'm surprised that we don't have a more significant die-off. I mean, because um, uh, we talk about with CCD, if, if you're treatment-free, then you don't have you, – you know, well, you can, you can eliminate CCD using the treatment-free techniques, but, um, but you're going you're gonna to have a lot of loss of, of colonies – um, because uh, you're not, you know, they're addicted to the treatments. Basically, their genetics requires these treatments now, and now you're going to give them no treatment. So you're going to be going through that long and difficult process of letting a bunch of colonies go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's hard 
but it's for the best. Yeah, it is. And, and, and I mean, like, do you really want, when you're looking at your homestead or farm or, or whatever you want to call it, and, and it's like, here's my acreage and I'm living this plethora of life, I think there's a different message between living in a plethora of life that is um, uh, free of chemicals or or soaked in chemicals. And now I'm using that word chemicals again. Free of toxins versus soaked in toxins. Yeah. Free of poisons versus soaked in poisons. Yeah, and your farm is only as strong as your your, your wildlife. Uh, excuse me, your your uh, your animals. Your um, the if you have weak stock, then your whole farm is going to be weak, no matter what it is, whether it's cows or bees. You know this. Uh, <laughs> we always look at that when we're if we're going to buy a new animal and introduce it. We always look at why is the farmer selling that one? <laughs> yeah, the coal. Yeah, we've learned that that as farmers ourselves, we've learned that as a farmer, you don't sell your strongest stock; you keep it. So right. you have to have a really good relationship with somebody if you're going to get really good, good stock from them. And anyway, that's, uh, you know, that I think that's consistent throughout. All right. So now for my notes, I think I, I'm thinking we probably already covered swarming well enough. Yep. And so why why is it that conventional farmers, what, what do they think they're gaining by by preventing Swarming. Oh, that, and I mentioned it already about uh, you know if you keep them from swarming, your your honey production stays consistent because you don't have the loss of the the all the volunteers who just departed and went off to find a new home. It's a it's a production issue. Okay. And two. I just all right, Jacqueline. I got one last thing that I want to hit you with. Um, and uh, before we break, and then we'll, we'll we'll continue with the rest of my list because my list is double the size of what we've already talked about. <laughs> but but now um, there is because the swarming that's that's what you were you were collecting a swarm um, in that one movie um, in Queen of the Sun, yeah. Queen of the Sun, yeah. And um, the uh, so so a there's there's a technique which is very very simple for bringing home a swarm, but of course it requires somebody to spot a swarm, and then you've kind of got your swarm hotline. People will call you, and then you've got a collection of people who want to get a swarm, and then you'll connect swarm with people wanting a swarm. Mm -hmm. And from what I've never done this, I've never gone out and collected a wild swarm, but um, my my impression is it's it's ridiculously simple. Yeah, it is. Cardboard box, swarm in box, tap, get on yep, with your life. Tap the bo tap the branch so they all fall in, off you go. <laughs> yeah, and then and then you just kind of pour them into your hive, put the <laughs> exactly. lid on. Pour them in, put yeah. the hive top back on and and then go about your day. Yeah. Now, another thing though is that what some people do, which could take a really really long time, but when it happens, people are so happy, and that is that you set up an empty hive, and then you, I believe you put some essential oils on the inside, and um, hopefully when, when it, um, a bunch of bees are getting ready to swarm or they're already swarming, they're sending scouts far and wide to find a new home, and one of those scouts will find this home, go back and tell the others about it, and then boom, baby, You've got a colony in your hive. Yes, and that that's exactly how you say it. You put it up high enough. You know what? Actually, let's talk about this tomorrow because I'd actually like to give a better recipe for doing that, but it'll take me five minutes to do that. But they'll have much higher success with it. So ask me, fill me in on where you just ended that question. and let me <laughs> All right, we will okay. continue this. Okay, great. I'll see you tomorrow so, at 1030. If, if you like this sort of thing... <laughs> Come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about honeybees, homesteading, and permaculture all the time. This podcast will continue in part three. <laughs>